Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Friday, heading into a long weekend, but not slacking here. We'll get the very latest on the ground from Mike Armstrong, who's in Ottawa. This looks like a big day of action with police making arrests. Can they do it peacefully on day 22 of the protests and the trucker convoy and the freedom convoy and whatever you would like to call it? But things are happening. We'll get the very latest from him in real time. Also, Amber Mack, tech tech expert on the show. We talk a fair bit about the funding that went to uh, Give, Go, Send as being sort of a uh, bullet point to document that you're never really free and anonymous online. You might think you can erase this, erase that. Uh, There's a digital footprint that you leave. That's for certain. That and so much more on the show. Uh, And I've got thoughts, of course, on where we're going with restrictions in Ontario as we're opening up a fair bit. We're talking about mandates being dropped in this particular province. So we'll get there as well. Toronto Today for a Friday starts now. Let me start here with Ottawa. We're starting to see protesters get arrested. Things are are turning somewhat. And uh, and I don't know that this is over, over, but um, it's really interesting to think about where this standoff has gone. And heading into the weekend, um, will this be the final chapter of Ottawa? It's going to be, to me, uh, days to weeks, like a few weeks before, even if they all left today, even if everybody evacuated Ottawa, there goes the honking horns that drive you crazy. There goes that hot tub. That hot tub was still in operation yesterday. Just takes one uh, steak knife into the, not not into one of the hot tub participants, okay? Just into the hot tub itself. It's one of those blow-up ones. Um, this isn't some nice wood-paneled one. You go over, you know, you have rich friends, you go over and they're like, oh, nice hot tub you have. Nice to be you, Elaine Bennis. But you go over and you see these big uh, hot tubs in backyards. That's not what this is. And it's going to be incredibly interesting to see today and tomorrow. We've got Mike Armstrong on the ground there, and we're going to talk to him in the 8 o'clock hour this morning about um, what transpires, because this has gained such international notoriety, and they know that. The protesters are well aware of uh, their ink, if you will, and how much they've been talked about. Uh, maybe you should look, by the way, in, uh, in Australia, in, uh, in Melbourne. There has been a trucker protest like you cannot believe there, and people want their city back after 10, 11 days. Um, so it has had wide-ranging implications. We were watching weekend rallies for, I think, months in the fall about vaccine mandates in Paris and in Belgium, some of the Eastern European, uh, in Brussels, Belgium, some of the Eastern European nations as well, and their capital cities uh, in Budapest and Prague. And you'd be like, wow, wonder what would happen if that ever transpired here. And in Toronto, at least, what, two weeks ago yesterday, it kind of did. And I could never have predicted. You know, we asked Jugmeet Singh on the show yesterday. In a million years, he didn't predict this. He didn't. Now, there were predictions about what was transpiring and what was coming. And that's what I want to get to. But first, this is Steve Bell, the interim police chief, after the uh, rather uh, ignominious resignation of uh, Peter Slowey, the police chief there. This is Steve Bell saying, we're getting more involved. There's going to be arrests. This is a rather inevitable process now. We've been bolstering our resources, developing clear plans, and preparing to take action. The action is imminent. In the past few days, we've been communicating directly with the unlawful protesters. We've told them they must leave, and we've warned them the consequences of disobeying these rules. We want to end this unlawful protest peacefully and safely. 
Now, again, if I played you that clip, what are we talking about? 18 days ago, you'd be like, makes sense. They've been there three days. It's time to uh, move them out and arrest people. Give them their city back. The Sunday uh, proclamations three weekends ago, I, I, I just, I couldn't, I'm dying. I'm laughing at them. Well, um, I'm Mayor Jim Watson. You guys have made your point. Time to go now. And they're like, nah, we're not, we're not going. <laughs> please. Pretty please with a cherry on top. That's what it got to at a certain point in time. And why are we different than any other country? Like I've heard people say, well, you can't just arrest these people. Let me get this straight again. And, and again, however you feel about the protest, however emboldened you were to support it or, or however disgusted you are. We had people calling us from Ottawa all week who have listened to the show. It's great that we've got listeners in Ottawa that are listening live. They're not even getting it um, back on the podcast. Let me get this straight. In Canada, we're so different that you can't arrest people for breaking laws. Well, but Greg, the trucks. No, I know. I know that. They're heavy. Yeah, the, the, the trucks weigh a lot. So you um, you tow them away. You don't ask towing companies to do it. You tell towing companies that you're going to commandeer their trucks and you do it. Okay. There are ways like, I don't know why. And so don't make me defend the extraordinary powers, which sounds like a sitcom um, or a Saturday morning cartoon show that the Canadian government needed to invoke a here to deal with the blockades. It's an absolute admission of failure. I can't say that enough. I said it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, here we are on Friday. Um, cause guess what? Their ordinary powers, they've been soft. They've been wimps. They have been, you know it. And I know it, uh, we need extraordinary powers to deal with the blockades because our ordinary powers, uh, don't seem to function because we won't use them when people block streets day after day and they disrupt daily life and people can't, and, and stores cannot open and people can't get to their jobs and they can't get to their university classes. You arrest them and you impound their vehicles it doesn't mean that the pro we can have an honest conversation about vaccine mandates and i you know this i'm very critical of the prime minister's tone about this incredibly critical okay i didn't hear as many people saying it the thursday after he said what he said three weeks ago either but i said it okay it doesn't mean i'm right but i'm saying that i said it i i don't I, again we're physically incapable of moving trucks. Like, like what a parody we are to the other countries that like we have enough, we have enough to deal with already with, uh, you know, it, quote igloos and sled dogs. And, uh, you know, we all, uh, you know, we all just play hockey nonstop and say, a and a boot. We got, we got a lot of resources here. We, you know, I even understand that we have some companies that make heavy equipment. That's just a rumor out there. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's true or not. I, <laughs> we can't move trucks. They're so big. That's what we look like. So eventually perception becomes reality in that department. Uh, your texts are welcome on this two eight nine nine seven five one six forty. Did, did we mess up our ordinary powers and have, thus have to resort to extraordinary powers? You're still going to end up with the same result. It just took you this long. And I, Listen, the Canadian government could have snuffed out any concept of they want to they want to mess with people's money and they want to dig in and, and, you know, track down where all this cash came from. Well, maybe they did. And maybe maybe there was by design a method to wait this out and do just that. I don't know that that's 100 percent true or not, but I don't know that it's zero percent with what they've done. They've certainly left themselves open to a lot of speculation here uh, on that front. How could how how could we argue otherwise at this point in time? 
Um, you heard it in the news that uh, boosters are opening for 12 to 17 year olds. I don't know how much time we can give this this morning, but I want a couple minutes uh, right now. Um, Omicron, to me, kind of changed the game for whether we're going to do this or not. And there was an article in the Atlantic, uh, on the Atlantic website about three weeks ago, and I clipped it and was looking back at it last night, getting ready for this morning. The headline's pretty simple. Should teen boys get boosted? And you might have heard my, uh, it wasn't yesterday, but I had an exchange with Stephen Del Duca about it, um, not yesterday when he was on, but a few weeks ago uh, when he was on. And I've got some hesitation to do it. Um, I've got two teenage boys. They both have two shots. Um, I'm well aware that the goal should be uh, to prevent illness and sickness for COVID-19. But there is a risk-benefit calculus around third shots to me for teen boys and young men that complicate things. I'm not saying no to it, but I'm not rushing out and signing my kids up. That doesn't make me an anti-vaxxer, an anti-masker, an anti-anything. I'm just not I'm not lining up to do it right now. Okay. Why is that? Let's talk about the new variant. You want to talk about Omicron? Let's talk about Omicron. Here's a couple things that it does. And these are patently obvious things. So I guess I'm I'm trying to speak to people who have especially teenage boys right now. Um, and I'd say any boys under under 25, I would really say. Uh, some of the numbers start at 40, but let's for the sake of uh, of a proper conversation say let's go 25 and under. What does the new variant do? Well, it gets past immune protection. It does do that. What what protected us from alpha and delta doesn't necessarily work. It spreads like wildfire. We already know this. Okay. Uh, I still I think there's such a terrible message still out there. Like, and I think it it got a bit better over Christmas, but I still think it exists in some circles. Oh, you got Omicron. What did you do? Where 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 did you go? Who did you run into? None of that seems to matter anymore. None of that should matter anymore. And those are conversations we shouldn't even have. But it whatever protection. The good thing is that it's it's less severe than Delta. If if some people bristle at, at saying it's more mild than Delta, but I don't know another word. No one's saying it's mild, period, for everybody. The death rate we've had from Omicron should indicate that. But the death rate from Omicron also is part and parcel with how dramatically it's spread. So this should make sense. You have less individual risk based on Omicron because it's less severe. And if you already are in a fully vaccinated household that doesn't have, um, you know, people in there with a lot of comorbidities and people that are unvaccinated, you're in a better position. But there is an incremental risk of myocarditis that comes with every mRNA vaccine injection. That is an accurate statement. And uh, you have to weigh what's my level of protection going two to three doses. Okay. If this was a virulent knock you on your ass virus, the Omicron, that is, and it was binging teenagers nonstop, uh, we got a different conversation here. And myocarditis is something that really uh, arises in kids and young adults after they get over a viral infection. I had a university roommate that had it. He had mono. It knocked him on his butt for six months in second year of university. I remember it really well when the uh, Alberville Olympics were on. He was <laughs> he was sick nonstop. I laugh about it now because he's fine. But um, patients with mild myocarditis might not get sick enough to need that medical attention, but you don't know, okay? Um, so uh, absolutely, is myocarditis worse with unvaccinated teens? Yep, 100%. But going from first shot to second shot, going sorry, going from zero shots to one shot is one thing, and you should do that to me. One shot to two shots, yeah, yeah, 
Uh, two shots to three shots is the bridge that to cross that we didn't talk about that wasn't on the map six months ago. It was not on the map. And there is a vaccine adverse event reporting system in the United States. And uh, 92% of the patients that, that had reported had recovered. But 265 cases in the United States met that definition. Myocarditis in kids aged to 12 to 15 uh, off that third shot. Uh, it's not nothing. So I have to judge as a parent and I'm waiting. I'm waiting this out. I'm not sure I'm ready to do it. And I know that I don't want it forced upon me by a mandate, right? For sports, to go to a movie, taking my kids to the movies on Sunday. I, it's nothing that I want right now. So we're going to have honest conversations about vaccination. There you have it. I couldn't wait to run out and get mine. And I was not hesitant to get a third shot for me. I think there are parents that are willing to uh, sit this one out, especially those with teenage boys. Mike Armstrong uh, is the excellent Global News national reporter, and he's kind enough to join Toronto today right now on the scene, boots on the ground in our nation's capital. Mike, thanks very much for making I know it's busy. Thanks very much for making the time for us. Oh, very much a pleasure. Uh, tell me, yeah, your, your anticipation of this. We, uh, we broke that news earlier this morning, uh, that parliament won't sit, which is controversial in itself, given they were discussing, going to discuss and debate the emergency measures act, but that, that, you know, sort of warning shot to, uh, members of parliament does suggest, uh, a major police operation in that geographical area. Well, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know how they would have gotten parliamentarians downtown anyway, and even to have those negotiations. We heard yesterday that police were putting up these uh, 100 checkpoints uh, to sort of control the downtown core. We're talking a few blocks to the east uh, of Parliament Hill, a few blocks to the west, and then from Parliament Hill right to the highway. So about 2.2 square kilometers and 100 checkpoints. Now, waking up this morning, I can tell you that those checkpoints are not only in that area, they're very much in the neighborhoods also bordering that area. So it's it, it caused... I don't want to say gridlock, but it's a considerably tougher to get around downtown. Uh, the other way they're controlling access to this area is the highway. Um, all of the on-ramps and off-ramps uh, for a few kilometers, all of the, the on-ramps and off-ramps that you would use to access downtown are closed. And so you're, you're, you basically have to go past the downtown. Everyone is siphoned off at one exit at a checkpoint, and then you have to sort of weave your way back downtown. It is... Uh, very, very complicated to get around. I don't think they could have had those uh, talks anyway today. It must be utterly surreal. And when I explain this to like American friends, Mike, European friends, like even three weekends ago, and, and I tell them, I go, if you've never been to Ottawa, it is, it's a hard city to get around. Like it takes some, it takes some maneuvering to get to Parliament Hill or to the Rideau Center, or it's, it's just not big at its core at all. Yeah, no, that, that is, that is true. The other, I think there's actually probably a message as well uh, in what they've done and these checkpoints and choking off the downtown core. I mean, they're allowing people in if you work or you live in this area, but they're not allowing protesters in. And that, that's the big thing. Protesters can leave, by the way. That, that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Police are going to let them through the checkpoints. Um, but they're not allowing protesters in. What that does is choke off access for the shuttles uh, from the protest camps that are in there's one in Gatineau. There's one in Coventry Road, about three kilometers from Parliament Hill. There are a couple out in Embrum, a town about 30 kilometers outside town. Uh, and so you could park your car out there, get shuttled, brought down here, uh, fed breakfast at those camps, things like that. Mm. The message in, in choking off the downtown core is this to the people this weekend that might be driving in from Montreal or Toronto or wherever, don't come because you're not getting downtown anyway. 
And so what we've been speculating in recent days was as though the numbers swell on the weekends with people coming to participate on their days off, um, the window would close for police to really have a, any forcible action um, because the numbers would be so big. Now they're not going to allow those numbers to get bigger this weekend. And that means that this sort of forceful action could come at any time. Matter of fact, in recent minutes, we've been hearing sort of uh, east of the Rideau Centre uh, that there is uh, a more forceful operation underway. I, I've been sent some pictures that show officers with helmets. Uh, I've been told that there are rifles out, things like that. That's something we haven't seen in recent days. And that could be sort of um, taking uh, the eastern flank, if I can put it that way, of this protest away, if they can start clearing the streets, kind of like... Um, cutting off slices of bread. You, you, you sort of do it from yeah. the outside uh, to get to the middle. That sort of feels like what that operation is. And that's underway. It started just very recently. Mike Armstrong, Global News National Reporter, joining us on Toronto Today. Last thing for you, and, and you, we got time for you to, to stretch out this answer. Last night was probably, it seems to me, a quieter night. We obviously saw videos of, yeah, more dance parties, the dudes in the hot tub. We saw all of that. Um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, even after there was talk about this Emergency Measures Act, there are protesters getting arrested saying, hold the line. What was the evening like um, in terms of noise and in terms of volume of, of people on the streets? There hasn't been as much noise uh, as there has been in, over in the last couple of weeks. There, there's that injunction, which you know not everybody respects, but I would say most people have respected it, not blurring their horns and sirens and things like that. Um, but at the at the same time, last evening here in Ottawa, at about five o'clock, the snow started, and it was a, it was a real snowstorm. So there were people partying and things like that in the streets, but it wasn't a comfortable party. I'll put it that way. It was quite a little storm. So it, in in overall, it was a little bit quieter last night. That said, uh, for people who have been following this closely, and for protesters down here, news of those arrests, uh, in particular Chris Barber and Tamara Lich, two people who've been very much front and center uh, as leaders since this started. They were picked up last night, one of those situations where they just got surrounded by uh, officers in yellow jackets who just picked them up, handcuffed, and off you go. Uh, and I'll say that those situations got very tense very quickly as people yeah. heard about it, wanted to be part of it, surrounded them, yelled at police, and police were gone as quickly as they could, uh, that sort of thing. That was sort of the, the the major news story from last night. Well, you're covering something historic. Uh, you've covered a lot of big stories, probably nothing quite like this. We'll be watching a, a little later on in the daytime. And thanks for making time for our audience this morning, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm very happy to have our next guest on, tech expert, but she's a lot more than that. You can visit her website uh, at ambermac.com. She tweeted something very prophetic uh this week about sort of security online and whatnot and she uh joins us right now social network still holds up right 10 years old that's a great movie still <laughs> right yeah it's still a great movie those were simpler times in our uh, internet lives <laughs> <laughs> you got andrew garfield uh, dropping that british accent he's great as uh you know when he smashes uh jesse eisenberg's laptop when he fires him from facebook i like that i thought that's really interesting to me yeah, I mean, it was. it's a great movie. I think it still stands if you want to know a little bit about the early history of uh, Facebook. And uh, it kind of gives you a glimpse into how it really unraveled over the years. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you tweeted this, and again, I thought downright brilliant. Here's what you sent out. No donation is truly anonymous. 
No message really disappears. No activity is actually private. And we're seeing this now with the discussion about Give, Send, Go. We were talking about it with GoFundMe in the first initial um, several days of uh, of this trucker convoy, of the protest, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, but it's a great message whether you're involved in this or not. All three of those messages stand up for all of us. Yeah, I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of people obviously are uh, incredibly emotional. And and I totally understand, you know, on all sides, everybody's gone through a lot over the past couple of years. And I think in the process, really, what's happening is that uh, we are forgetting about how to really use the Internet in a safe and responsible way. And so, you know, with my first tip in terms of no donation is truly anonymous, Uh, Basically, what I wanted to say is that, you know, for people donating to any website or any cause, uh, first of all, of course, even though you may want to remain anonymous, there's always some back end that's recording your information that can be hacked into. And then secondly, I think, um, you know, if we look at a platform like Give, Send, Go, for a lot of people who donated and, and they perhaps had good intentions, it might have been the first time they even heard about that platform. Mm-hmm. So we also have to be a little bit careful about giving money to places and platforms that we're just hearing about for the very first time. Oh, we're it, it, just even even doing retail ordering right stresses some people out, right? And and these are sites that you end up being familiar with, whether you're on Shopify, what even just whether you're on Amazon. Like I, I never hit click, I never hit click, and and not feel just a little bit, just a a, a minute amount of tension about putting you know new credit cards in, or if your credit card number changes, the back three numbers on your card. We all feel that, so I can only imagine Give Send Go probably gave people exactly that, if indeed they did donate. Yeah, and I think, you know, even just to go back to the movie, The Social Network, if you think about yeah. the early days of social media, let's think about how we all used to use it. And I remember this. I remember crafting a tweet, and then I would kind of look at it for a while. Maybe I wouldn't post it. We were very careful and a little bit cautious about what we put out there. And now I think what we're seeing is just, you know, a whole army of keyboard commandos who are so excited to type anything they want to, to you know, use the Internet uh, in a way that uh, they think perhaps, um, you know, it won't come back to haunt them. And I think what we see is, unfortunately, uh, no matter what side you're on, the Internet is not a private place. I sit around constantly and debate with friends about this, uh, that this pandemic, uh, we needed this pandemic in, you know, 1986, uh, before when, when we when we all had like, uh, you know, Commodore 64s and we really couldn't. <laughs> be, but, uh, you know, it, it's been good in that you can make connections with people and you can find like minded people who think what you think, but it's given an awful lot of people a lot of power. And, you know, I can put up one study about this and somebody can put up another study about that. And there's just so much conflicting information that you I'm sure you've done it as tech savvy as you are. Sometimes you're just like, I, I can't take I'm walking away from this. I, I can't deal with this the next 12 hours. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the issues that we're seeing right now, too, is that something you might have posted on social media a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago in the early days, uh, again, can come back to really haunt you in a, a number of different ways. And I would also say, and maybe I'm just a little more open minded around this, I feel we need to give people room to be able to expand their opinion on things based on new evidence that comes into their lives, right? 
Unfortunately, um, there's a mob of people on social media who think, you know, what you thought 10 years ago and posted is exactly how you feel today. So I just wanted to say to people, you know, I was listening to a podcast recently by um, a tech journalist, Casey Newton, and he says that he actually deletes his tweets every 18 months. And I, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to approach this issue where you don't always want your history of posts to follow you around. Hundred percent. I, you know, and and I probably I probably scrub some of mine even more recently than that. You, you like you describe it as a digital cleanse, and it's something that I think a lot of people probably look at and say, well, you know, whether it's something data based or whether it's something in your own life, um, like it just it just it, we never thought we'd leave that kind of footprint around, right? It's not like somebody can go through our university essays or our conversations, uh, you know, at a high school party or something. We all would struggle with uh, we all feel like our privacy almost would be invaded. But you have to know. And I know you teach your kids this. I sure do that. The digital footprint is something you have to reckon with to sons and daughters that we sure didn't when we were younger. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think, again, you know, even when I'm saying this in terms of protecting your digital footprint online, I also recognize that I had just said that uh, nothing uh, that you post uh, uh, is private. And I think that stands true in terms of deleting tweets and deleting, deleting posts. But I think what will happen is if you do a better job of kind of cleansing the social media that you put out there, it'll be less likely that a number of people will go through your history and jump onto these tweets. You know, not everybody's going to be able to discover everything you posted. And I only mention that because I think what we're seeing right now is that uh, no one is really immune from a mob of people coming after them in terms of something that they put online years ago. And we have to recognize that that's just the reality that we live in today and really take precautions in terms of protecting ourselves, our livelihood, and all those things that come along with it. Amber Mack, our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady on 640 Toronto. You make um, you make a great case as well for building some anti-harassment tools in uh, to, to people's accounts. And, you know, at some point, maybe, just maybe, Twitter will say, well, you need a credit card. You can't be an anonymous person. You we, you know, if you're, if you're going after somebody, as you describe it, in mob-like fashion, we're going to be able to find you much easier than than we can right now. I could create a Twitter account in the next 90 seconds as we're talking. And until that gets rectified, um, the anti-harassment tools are kind of important, especially for people, especially for people in politics, people in the public eye, I'd argue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's be honest, you know, people deal with the harassment in different ways, right? I've certainly, as a woman in technology, been screamed at for the past 15 years, and I, I'm okay with it. You know, I can get up every day and move on, but people deal with it differently. For some people, the harassment uh, it really gets to them and has a, a toll on their mental health. So. I just want to remind people that uh, there are tools built into all the different platforms on Twitter, for example. Here's a great thing to use. You probably didn't know this, but when you tweet something and you tweet it to everybody in your feed, let's say you start getting trolled by bots or anonymous accounts or people who are harassing you. Even after you've tweeted that, you can actually go into that tweet and you can change who's allowed to reply so that, you know, one, nobody can reply at all unless they're mentioned in the tweet or everyone you follow. Um, So that gives you the option, again, to kind of cut off the harassment while it's happening. That's a little tool that Twitter hasn't been that great about actually telling people how to use it. Before you go, you must um, you went to school in Ottawa. You just must be like, what's the last three weeks, three weeks been like, you know, just viscerally watching it like you must have so many fond memories of going. I know people at school there now. My wife went to Carleton. You you went to school with my wife, actually, Rachel Moore um, in her uh, in you you got a star studded class. You got Ian Mendez, Rachel Moore. (laughs) Um, 
Am, uh, Amber McKenzie. Come on, it's a, it's a star-studded class. What's it like watching what's happened in our nation's capital the last three weeks? That must be a city that you love and, and still go back to a fair bit. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a really good friend coming down to, uh, for the weekend from Ottawa uh, today, actually. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's devastating to watch what is happening in Ottawa. And it's also complicated, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. something that, you know, I think people can, um, you know, really understand as far as the complexity of the issues that are at hand. Uh, but yeah, it's devastating to see what's happening, uh, especially on, on uh, Parliament Hill. And I will just say, you know, I, I'm probably naive about this, but just as my very last point, uh, Greg, I kind of imagined that we would come out of COVID-19, that the the mandates would be eased, and we'd have kind of a party across Canada in terms of, hey, all coming together and getting through this. Uh, so I think, you know, through that lens, it's even more upsetting in terms of what's happening. And, and as we near kind of the final stretch, that this is how things have unfolded, and, and many parties are to blame. So yeah, it's definitely not something that... Uh, um, any of us want to see. Yeah, there's some there's some uplifting and and uh, picking up the pieces and, and healing that needs to be done uh, for certain. I hope you have a great uh, family day long weekend. Thanks for always making time for our show. Uh, people can go to ambermac.com and you, you do it all there, the blog, the podcast, all that stuff. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So let's bring in our uh, Chatterbox participants, and we so thank them for their time. Amira El-Gawabi uh, is human rights advocate uh, and director of programs and outreach for the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Amira. Good morning, Greg. Thank you. And Sabrina Nanji uh, from QP Observer. And in this province, Sabrina, always something to observe. So it's an aptly named website. That's the way I'm, that's that's my story. I'm sticking to it. You got a noon announcement with uh, Caroline Mulroney and Doug Ford that I'm sure you'll be uh, all over. You don't have to drive out to, Wh- I, I can cover that in Whitby for you if you want. I'll, I'll send you an invoice, but it's right next door to me. I can handle it today. I don't mind a road trip for this weekend, but yeah, never, never a dull moment at Queens Park. No, we all like uh, getting out of our uh, abodes uh, once in a while. Um, Amir, let's let's start here. So fourth weekend in Ottawa, but I think when when we were thinking, well, what will we talk about this morning? Uh, maybe the end of this particular occupation. Um, we saw it in sight, but maybe now, even with what happened in the evening. What's happening today with the breaking news that MPs are being told you must stay home today. We're not sitting in House of Commons today. So it feels like it's coming to an end. We hope, I suppose, without more physical conflict than we've had already, which has been, to be honest, minimal. Yeah, no, absolutely, Greg. I think everyone is holding their breath right now in Ottawa. You know, we've seen... Um, you know, people within the community protesting themselves, taking it upon themselves to block roads and, and say enough is enough. Just last weekend, I know that there were more counter protest plans for this weekend, but those have been called off simply because we've now actually seen some pretty concrete steps. We've seen 100 checkpoints set up uh, around uh, Parliament Hill and in the periphery. We have uh, seen, you know, much, much more heavy police presence. We're hearing finally, I think, uh, for the for Ottawa residents, all the right uh, message from from the police. So I think there is a feeling that uh, this will be brought to an end. Will it, uh, you know, avoid violent confrontation? I mean, certainly some of the protesters in any media interview you'll hear, um, those who are staying put are pretty hardcore, um, and that certainly must be worrying for uh, the law enforcement. Um, but, you know, there is a, a great hope that with also arrest of some of the leaders, the key leaders, um, that this will signal that, you know, it is enough enough now. And um, the vast majority of Canadians are completely opposed to this uh, occupation, this siege. And, uh, and uh, hopefully now the authorities will make sure that they get out. 
Yeah, Sabrina, Amir makes an interesting point where there might have been support to say, sure, peacefully protest, um, you know, m make this time yours, have that first weekend. Um, but when things started to change and nobody did anything, I think they became emboldened and they puffed out their chest. Then they see all these premiers, including, you know, our own in Ontario, sort of, you know, changing the landscape of maybe how long certain mandates are going to stay in place. And maybe they felt a little empowered by that. And they're like, nobody's moving us. No, nobody's nobody's giving us even tickets for parking illegally for those first couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think that the feeling is about time. You know, it's it's been a long four weeks. Uh, and and now, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the restrictions, especially in Ontario, are being lifted. Like, of course, this started out um, as a, a protest against the, the trucker vaccination mandates, but it's completely morphed into something else, you know, uh, a catch-all protest against all, all COVID restrictions and, you know, pretty much an occupation of the capital and, and blockades at the Canada-US borders. But I think, uh, you know, you, you're right. Uh, it, it hopefully won't get too intense, but I don't know if um, people are that uh, angry anymore. Like we're already getting mm -hmm. end dates for a lot of rules in Ontario. Uh, what I'm hearing from my sources in government is that all COVID restrictions, um, including masks, you know, the last thing we don't have an end date for uh, will be lifted by the time the campaign comes around. Um, and so obviously, you know, there's there's a political backdrop to all of this. Uh, but I think, yeah, especially with the federal government taking this unprecedented move to invoke the Emergencies Act, um, the big question is, is, is what if it doesn't work? Um, I think, you know, hitting these groups, uh, you know, where it counts in their wallets, uh, the money is, is a big deal. But I think for a lot of people, they want to see the police pretty much enforce um, the laws that they were already enforced to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of hope it will happen without any violence. But yeah, of course, it remains to be seen. And the situation still feels like it's a bit touch and go right now. That's Sabrina Nanji. Uh, she's from the QP Observer. Amira El-Gawabi is with us as well on Chatterbox on uh, 640 Toronto. Um, Amira, Sabrina brings up policing and it's such a, um, you know, we were having a lot more in-depth conversations, certainly about it in the summer of 2020. We saw, and we've had certainly our own issues in Toronto with debating, uh, where force may have been used, where perhaps there should be counseling. It's rough, right? If someone has a weapon, if there's a, a domestic violence occurrence, uh, or, or, you know, so, you know, somebody active with, uh, as I said, a knife or a gun, we can't send someone out with a clipboard. That said, in mental health cases, I know this has gotten documented a fair bit. Uh, we we shouldn't be sending in a SWAT team either. It's I, I you know, we're still all still struggling for that really fine line about policing here. And I think what we've seen in Ottawa has certainly, um, you know, we've got to get an end to this. But it, it, it certainly creates a lot more conversation about what is the purpose and, and the function of law enforcement supposed to be? Yeah, it's an important discussion, Greg. Um, I think when we think about what's been happening in Ottawa, that is where we expect to see our police services uh, protect the, you know, the population from people who are flaunting the law, who are disturbing the peace, who are potentially threatening folks. We saw a harassment. We saw threats being made against folks. We saw hate speech. We saw these types of things. And frankly, there was a feeling among much of the uh, population in Ottawa, the residents of Ottawa, that police were not protecting them. Um, and so that, that raises 
its own question as to why not? Why why did the police in Ottawa fail to give the security that the you know that the residents of the city who pay their wages, who pay for them to be there, who increased their budget actually uh, this past uh, budget season? Uh, why were they not there for about 21 days, where they really have felt quite threatened? So that that's a separate question mm-hmm. in terms of defunding, where we talk about defunding, and a lot of people don't understand that term. What that term really means is that. Do we need to be sending, as you point out, police to address situations where someone is having a mental health crisis, where there isn't necessarily a concern around violence, where there isn't a weapon? There are so many calls that are just automatically uh, sent to police where they will show up and they're not trained necessarily to deal with mental health issues. And so in Toronto, for example, there's going to be a new pilot project being rolled out in a month where instead of sending police, you're sending professionals who are equipped to de-escalate a situation to provide the mental health support that an individual in distress may need. And that is where we think about how do we reallocate resources that are currently being put into police budgets to address those types of uh, emergencies in our communities to the social services where they have seen cuts year after year Mm -hmm. after year and instead actually bolster those services so that we can provide the right kind of support to people who need it. Uh, Sabrina, Mira makes such a good point that it, it's uh, it, it it can be we can have some kind of a hybrid model, and I'm just not sure that slogan defund the police it it was it was clunky it it became a certainly a big thing on the U.S. campaign trail for president where Joe Biden said well I don't agree with this and Donald Trump certainly didn't agree with it but the concept is to sort of to reallocate and to restructure um and and again to to not treat every every um, call every nine one one call like well we, we got to send four guys guys with body armor and uh and and weapons to it um that, that's a distinction that people need to need to need to get right yeah i i think amira is absolutely right like this is a moment to um discuss more you know what defunding the police actually means um obviously you know it's it's not about uh stopping all funding i mean police obviously serve serve their functions but i think especially after watching how this, uh, you know, so-called freedom convoy was handled or not, you know, depending on your on your vantage point. Um, certainly the people in Ottawa think, uh, you know, that the police didn't do a good enough job. And then comparing that to, you know, um, back during the G20 protests or even this past summer in Toronto with, um, you know, the uh, homeless encampments getting removed uh, in a very intense manner. Uh, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we're watching um, Ottawa police sort of, you know, allow hot tubs to be set up uh, in, in Ottawa like from from these protesters. So I think this is, you know, this is a moment of reckoning. um, And, uh, you know, it's it's time to maybe discuss uh, whether funds should be, uh, you know, going towards um, better training for police or, you know, having more nurses on mental health crisis calls, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. Um, So I I think this is absolutely a a moment of reckoning. Um, But, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions. And I think it really comes down to transparency and accountability. I mean, at the end of the day, police are publicly funded, um, you know, and I think that we need some more uh, insight, you know, from a public accountability perspective into how these decisions are being made, um, especially because, uh, you know, they tend to take up the biggest chunk of money from our municipal budget. So absolutely, there needs to be more accountability here. Sabrina, let me stick with you here. And, and then I want Amira to be able to uh, to wrap on and expand for as long as she wants. But you're going to go pretty deep into covering a provincial election that's coming up in under four months or so. And uh, when I look at the numbers yesterday, I tweeted them out. Hospitalizations, ICUs, they've all plummeted. Um, healthcare and education, they're both going to be massive issues uh, at, at, you know, at when people cast their vote. 
to either keep uh, the Ford government or to uh, seek an alternative in the NDP or the liberals. But I, I, I wonder if the conservatives feel that the last four weeks is a feather in their cap. I, I thought they dithered a lot in December with getting schools ready. I'm not sure they should have closed ever at all in January, that is. Um, but I don't know how they can't claim that schools have gone better than so many people forecast this last month. Well, I mean, of course, they're going to spin that uh, their way. You know, you're right. The, the campaign's coming up and any silver lining here, um, the, the PCs will use to to their advantage. And, um, you know, they, they could arguably take credit for it. For me, though, um, on the schools front, uh, and especially now that we just heard from the education minister, Stephen Lecce, that, you know, they'll be allowing the option for virtual learning to continue for the next year. So obviously, um, you know, the, we're not out of the pandemic yet, despite, you know, the premier saying we're, we're done with COVID right now. Um, they're, they're still, uh, you know, just bracing for any uh, future closures. But I, I think we kind of need to ask you know, what did school closures in January accomplish? Like, obviously, there was a lot of back and forth there. Um, it was a very fluid situation at the time, you know, a, t a lot of flip flopping from the premier too. But I think there, mm -hmm. there's this vibe amongst um, the, the general population that, you know, unless schools are closed, you're not doing enough um, to deal with the COVID situation. And so it seemed more like what happened in January wasn't really enough about uh, you know, a public policy goal here. Uh, when you look at the numbers of vaccination rates, they kind of went up during that the the couple mm -hmm. of weeks that schools were closed in January. Um, but I think that you know, especially in terms of the data, they've already changed how schools are reporting on these cases. You know, we're not getting as much information. So I think without the data, it really allows the government to spin this however they want it. But you know, you're right. There is a lot to feel positive about here and now. Um, it sounds like there might be some changes. You mentioned, you know, COVID restrictions lifting. Um, they're going to mainly be gone, you know, mm. towards the spring is, is what I'm hearing. Um, but, you know, for schools, I think uh, they it's always, you know, the last to close. And I think we we should be asking ourselves and, and asking for specifics um, from the government, you know, about what what did the, the closures accomplish? Um, and mm. I mean, I guess at this point we can see, you know, there you can take it how you want it. But generally speaking, it does look like, you know, the with the hospitalizations, things are are looking positive right now. Yeah. Amir, I got about 45 seconds. How, how would you weigh in on that? Can the conservatives claim victory, as it were, with, with even all the missteps that may have happened in education in the last two years? I mean, I, th I think they will obviously try to. I think what's most important, though, is that any messaging that they have uh, to Ontarians really speaks to the need to protect all Ontarians. And we know that there was a disproportionate impact of COVID on different communities in this province. And so it's going to be very important to ensure that, you know, that everyone has the protection they need and not only certain communities that might be better off, have higher uh, uh, vaccination rates than others, but that they do have a plan to ensure that the disproportionality of this pandemic doesn't, you know, should we see another one or another crisis that, that we are ensuring that safety for all? Yeah. And, and schools, obviously, you know, closures and lockdowns, you know, disproportionately affected, uh, you know, a, a certain demographic as well. And that factors in. Amira, Sabrina, thank you very much. You guys are awesome. Have a great long weekend. I hope you can enjoy some of it. Appreciate you coming on this morning. Thanks, Thanks so much. much Jake. Day 22, although this feels like it's turning uh, towards the final chapter, if you will, uh, in Ottawa with the Freedom Convoy protests. Let's bring in Dr. Lori Turnbull, Associate Professor, Political Science Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, do you feel like this is this is all coming to a head this weekend? So far, there's been a couple peaceful arrests and there's some people uh, depart. We haven't seen 
some of the predicted trouble that uh, that some obviously had predicted. Yeah, um, definitely the feel in the city is very different. And so now the police have blocked off um, all of the main arteries right in the downtown. So like, you know, eastbound, westbound, the four main exits to get into the downtown are blocked. And you have to be like show the proof that you live there in order to be able to get in, I think. Um, and yeah, like we've seen some arrests. We've seen some trucks being moved out. I think people like, but there's still a, a an occupation. Like there's, you know, when you look at the, the photos from downtown, it's all lights, it's trucks, it's people in the streets. And so there's a, there's a long way to go, but the law, law enforcement presence has definitely stepped up considerably. We'll get to some of the, uh, you know, implications of, of the emergency measures, uh, powers and whatnot on the international stage. We've, I don't know that Canada's ever gotten this much attention for this long a period of time. What's it do for our reputation? Do they say, well, those are, uh, you know, those are active people. They're involved in their politics. Or do they especially look and say, why can't the government deal with, you know, blockades in a in a proper like what I heard it phrased yesterday. Why didn't they use their ordinary powers uh, to end this before using extraordinary powers to end it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this sort of this sort of thing is not what the rest of the world expects to hear about Canada. This is probably the opposite of what people think Canada does and Canada is. And we're a country that participates in exercises that are meant to export democratic principles around the world. Right. Like we we often are involved in in um, efforts that are about police training and security training and rebuilding democracies uh, re, you know, and rebuilding civil society after conflict and things like that. And so I, I have some serious concerns about how this might affect our credibility as a country that is able to stand up for those institutions, both inside our walls and outside our walls, too. I also would have to say that like, some of the coverage of what's going on is actually not factual. And so it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I guess that's, that, that's not a big surprise, but there are places reporting... Um, you know, that, that things are like a, a, a total police state kind of thing, which is, is not quite true. And so, yeah, but I mean, I, as you say, I don't think this, this isn't a great day for Canada at home or abroad. We haven't seen uh, now we've seen other North American cities lose control of um, of of policing, if you will. And we've seen obviously things take a couple of days. You know, I, I could think of, of demonstrations on, you know, during uh the summer of 2020, post the George Floyd uh, murder reaction, we can certainly talk about uh, the Rodney King verdict, not the Rodney King beating itself, but the but the verdict and the acquittal of the LAPD officers. And that's what April of 1992. But but I'm not sure anything quite went on as long in a North American city I can think of, which is maybe why it's getting such coverage in the United States. They haven't had a 21, 22 day stretch like this in a major city. Oh, yeah. And that's the, the huge thing. And that's making it obviously all the more complicated to try to dismantle because the, like the trucks are so embedded in the city. And as, as everybody can see from the coverage downtown, there are um, like shelters set up like and I, and I mean, like, you know, there are structures set up. There are things that are, like the trucks have have mailboxes and addresses on them. There's locations <laughs> where people are cooking. The like, famous hot tub, right? It's out there. It was even out there yesterday. Like they couldn't, they, that, that's been a eight, nine day straight thing, a hot tub. 
Really? Yeah. And I heard that there was on Mondays and Tuesday nights, there's a Nova Scotia kitchen party. This is breaking my heart, Greg. <laughs> like, oh I my bet. God. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, like this, this is where it's at at this point. And I mean, I, like it's, it's one thing when you can see that the, like the, the downtown is cleared out, you can start to envision, okay, this is, you know, they've cleared out the arteries. This is how they're going to start to move this thing out. But still like right down into the market, like there's, it, the city is still, you know, not not its normal self at all. Lori Turbles, our guest uh, from uh, Dalhousie University. Uh, the uh, in, uh, a rather extra, I mentioned extraordinary measures uh, and the Emergency Measures Act. Um, there's a lot of people saying, yes, it's time. There have been other things that have been uh, attempted and tried. And if by the snap of a finger uh, action starts to happen, I know most Canadians say, there was a just a fall down of, of policing and and too much government inaction and apathy for certainly the first two weeks of this. Um, but how how has it landed, do you think, with the average uh, Canadian? And, and does it fall almost just along political lines? There are people who support the liberal government who voted for Justin Trudeau who say, yes, you'll have to step up because no one municipally or provincially has. Yeah, I, I think you're right to point to reactions on the basis of party lines. Just to back up a little bit, like the Emergencies Act is is extraordinary. It is our emergencies legislation. This is the thing that you, you know, you break the glass to use it kind of thing. Like this is not, a, as the prime minister said, this is not a first choice or a third choice. This is a last resort. And so it's healthy for us to have a debate about whether this is the appropriate action for the federal government to take. There's certainly the argument made that, um, you know, Emergencies are essentially local. You let the uh, local authorities respond. And if it pushes beyond their capacity, then the next level sets in. And even the provincial state of emergency didn't change anything here. Like when Doug Ford uh, called the state of emergency, that was instrumental in helping local forces to deal with what was happening on the Ambassador Bridge. Here, it did nothing. It was like it didn't happen. And so there was certainly a push that somebody has to respond here, you know, and it, and again, like it's not, the Emergencies Act is not a perfect thing, but we're going to see it tested. Uh, we're going to see it tested in court, it looks like. We're going to see it tested in Parliament. This isn't an executive order. This is an act of Parliament that parliamentarians have to approve. And so we'll see, mm-hmm. on, you know, unfortunately for them, maybe because they're going to be in the House from 7 a.m. until midnight for the next few days debating this thing. But, you know, that accountability mechanism is extremely important. And the federal government is going to have to explain now and and in the aftermath too why this was the right approach. The idea of some of the financial oversight, um, uh, and I think uh, I I don't think that's God. There's so much gray matter and uh, and and nuance and middle ground in this. Uh, I I don't think I I struggle with the idea of the convoy organizers who have broken the law and who have been threatening. Um, you know, politicians and, and uh, the, there's, there's just been, there's a, there's a paper trail. Clearly there is. I don't mind the concept of freezing their assets and cutting off their um, supply chain, if you will, of finances. I think a lot of Canadians struggle with the idea that, well, I donated a hundred dollars to the truckers a week and a half ago, because I don't think there should be vaccine mandates and having those people quote unquote doxed and then their employer, they're, they're in trouble, you know, in their workplace. I understand for government employees, it's a different thing. So, for example, Sylvia Jones's communications director seems to have lost her job over a donation. Um, 
so government employees have to be a lot more cautious about causes they donate to clearly but for the average uh, joe or jennifer i'm i'm that feels like an overreach to me if we're going there and saying you can't donate to this cause well that's it and so I, that's where I think, you know, as they say, it's going to be in the details. It's going to be when we figure out exactly how the the financial side was implemented. Because I think in a, in a broad way, like, there's no way that this is going to be dealt with if money is still flowing. And the fact that we know that a lot of the money is flowing from outside the country adds mm-hmm. Significant dimension, you know, and it's it's not a little bit of money. This is serious money, but yeah, I mean, there will probably be like in in effort to to deal with this and shut it down and and take action quickly. It's possible that that people who shouldn't have their accounts frozen will have them frozen. It's possible mistakes will be made. It's possible that that the government will be held to account at some point for having gone too far with this, and that you know that hopefully that's. That's where our democratic institutions will protect people who shouldn't be caught in this in this net, right? Like that's not what this is for. I don't. But again, like we'll see. And the conservatives made that point yesterday too, right? Like we don't know at this point. There's no transparency around exactly how many bank accounts are being frozen, why, mm-hmm. who, you know. And so that's that's going to be information that that's going to have to come out at some point. Dr. Lori Turnbull, our guest, a um, couple quick ones to end on. What did you make of the exchange uh, would be Wednesday now with uh, Melissa Lantzman, the conservative MP. Uh, she's Jewish and uh, Justin Trudeau's. This is simple. It is politicking. It's some grandstanding. You know, where did you lose your way? And he references her, um, her answer by suggesting conservative MPs can stand with swastikas. And it it all kicked off, really. And I thought the Speaker of the House was, I know he mentioned including the Prime Minister, but I thought that was a direct reprimand to Justin Trudeau to sort of to, to sort of mind his manners a little bit. What did you make of the exchange? Yeah, um, it, like definitely we're seeing the temperature much higher in the House of Commons this week than we normally would. And I thought that in that particular moment, it was hard, like it, it was hard to watch because it was we don't want to, I mean, we obviously want to see our MPs impassioned and we want to see them, you know, not always reading from scripts. We want to see mm-hmm. them be in the moment and own their words and and all the rest of it. But we also don't want to see people get hurt and we don't want to see the a kind of exchange that, you know, like hurt someone personally. And it wasn't a great moment for everybody, for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that that over the next few days where again, they're going to be in the house of commons for hours every day. And that's, I hope that it's, it's not going to be all like, you know, highly emotional, really difficult moments. I hope that there's going to be meaningful debate uh, that, that helps to bring Canadians, you know, some information about this because this is an extraordinary time. I got under a minute uh, now. Do you think it does any of this push us closer to an election clearly if this uh if this emergency measures at any point gets toppled um by a combination of the block and the ndp i mean jugmeet singh was on the show yesterday he's really still again with his role and his mps the kingmaker here he can swing the balance does any of us get this get us to the polls again i know people are, are some people are want this obviously but does it get us there next spring in 23 does it get us uh, are we settling in on a fall election 23 does any of us move the needle forward Okay, so this is, now there's like a 
like a million thoughts flying through my head and I'm going to try to. <laughs> it's so funny that that the timing of the election last summer, like talk about honestly a useless election. And this is the moment where we actually need one. If the prime minister has chosen to go to go, like use the Emergencies Act mm-hmm. in order to deal with something like this, where we clearly have um, a breakdown in social cohesion, we have a breakdown in public trust. There is, you know, regardless of, of clearly the presence of far uh, far right wing extremism, conspiracy theories, fringe, whatever populism, like all that is happening here. But there's also a large number of frustrated Canadians who feel left behind by Trudeau's progressive agenda. And this is actually a moment, not in this particular moment, because we've got to figure out what's going on here. But it was striking me that later this summer, if we didn't have that election last year, would actually be an appropriate time for the prime minister to put his agenda to the public. Like after we've we've gotten some distance from the heart of COVID-19. But I don't know how in the heck we could do that at this point, because who wants another election now? It's like we all. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it feels. It feels like next spring might be the earliest, but again, that's the the NDP holds a lot of power here. I think they hold more power than they did at any point from fall of 2019 on. Um, you know, one misstep yeah. they can get, they can maybe push more of what they want in terms of policy yeah. going forward. Um, it's something we'll have to leave for next week. Have a great weekend, and and I appreciate you coming on. Anytime, thanks, Greg. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We always appreciate your time. We know it's valuable. Thank you for choosing to listen to us. We're back with a live show, by the way, on 640 Toronto on Family Day morning between 7 and 10. We're going to sleep in a little bit, but give you three hours of the very latest on what should be a busy and potentially crazy news weekend. It hasn't stopped for us. We thank you very much for checking us out and have yourself a great long weekend.